0: Okay, well let's uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, we come before you as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ that you have sent your son in the fullness of the times to redeem us who are under judgment, under the curse of your law, damnation, sin and death. And that you have brought us to an eternal and everlasting inheritance in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true son of God. We ask, Father, that you would build us up in this faith that is in you, that you would give us the joy and the confidence as the sons of God and daughters of God to look to your promises in Christ Jesus and to live by faith in your son. We pray now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, we've been looking at Galatians uh, chapter 3, and we're planning on finishing up that chapter today, and if we have a little time, we'll we'll look a little bit at the beginning of 4, but I thought I would, as usual, review uh, with you some of the things that we went over in the last lesson, chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. And before I do that, let me give you the broader picture again, once again, of this epistle. If you remember, Paul is called by the Son of God, whose revelation came to him on the road to Damascus. And he is conformed to the Son of God in his ministry in such a way that the Son, in the fullness of the times, has transformed him. That is, the Son. Now, he is the Son of God for Jews and Gentiles alike. And he has conformed this apostle to that particular sonship so that he might bring forth the Son to the nations, so that he might preach the gospel to the Gentiles as Gentiles, not that they become Jews. And of course, what has happened is Judaizers have implicitly opposed that message because they've said we need to go back to the former era in the history of redemption. We need to go back to an era in which Israel was the unique people of God, set aside uh, for God through the law, through circumcision and and the other rites of the law. And Paul says that's not recognizing the fullness of the history of redemption that has now come in Jesus Christ. And he finds then he represents that in the narratives of this epistle through Peter going back. In redemptive history, Peter going backward and seeking to live by the ceremonial laws, especially the food laws of the Old Testament. And he says, no, I have been crucified with Christ, died to the law, died to that former era, been raised from death to life, into the inheritance above in Christ Jesus. And now he goes on in chapter 3 to explicate that for us. You see. He goes on to describe for us the promises made to Abraham that would look beyond the law ultimately to the seed who is Jesus Christ, who receives the fullness of those promises in his resurrection. And so he looks through the law to the coming of Christ, saying we've passed the era of the law, at least in terms of its shadows and types. The law does not bring ultimate life. Christ does. The promises were to the seed. Well, then that's what, he ex- that's what he goes on to expand in the stuff that we looked at last week. Last week, you see, we were looking at the question, is the law then against the promises of God? Well, that's what we're going to look at this week. But he puts it in... Uh, verse 15, in terms of, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's a man's covenant, yet no one, after it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. And he says, in effect, that the law does not set aside the promises of God or add conditions to it. Properly understood. But the Judaizers who continue in the law, after Christ's death and resurrection, have made it an end in itself. They have made it an end of complete obedience to the law, works righteousness, and the curse that comes thereby. And they've made it an end in itself. So it's like saying, no, the law is against the promises of God. It's almost like the Judaizers are saying, the law is opposed to the promises of God. Implicitly, that's what Paul thinks they're doing. Okay? Okay? Paul says, you will nullify the grace of Christ and you will nullify the promises if you go back to the law now in the former era of the history of redemption. Now, I had a specific question last week that Stephen raised, and uh, and and I was talking about, and I just want to make a comment on one thing last week, and then we're going to move on. Uh, it says, a mediator is not of one, but God is one. The law was given through a mediator. And I wanted to emphasize at that point something that's emphasized by 17th century Puritan divines, which is that because this text talks about the law needing a mediator, it implies something about redemption. In other words, it's it's talking about Moses being a mediator to Israel. Remember in the giving of the law the people of israel said you know we 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 don't want to hear this law we can't we can't stand these words being spoken to us and therefore they wanted moses to go before them moses in effect to be a mediator and god accepted moses as a mediator right now i wanted to emphasize to you that in fact that indicates that the mosaic covenant and the law itself was a gracious covenant because didn't it provide a mediator? And how can you provide a mediator if you are purely a legal covenant, a covenant of works? There is no mediation there, is there? After the fall with Adam, there's no mediation in a covenant of works. A strict covenant of works, no mediation, right? So the fact that there is a mediator here indicates the gracious nature of that covenant. At the same time, So, I'm going to suggest there's continuity between the law and Christ. Of course, the mediator here, as Francis Roberts said, the mediator here pointed to the mediator Jesus Christ. But Paul also seems to be introducing this to make some sort of discontinuity. He seems to be suggesting that this covenant was given by angels by the hand of a mediator and... Therefore, in some ways, is distinct from the promise given to Abraham, as it was actually given directly to Abraham himself, and actually heard the words of God given to him. He did not have a mediator there at that point. Uh, whereas the law required a mediator. This may, though I'm just saying it may, also put some light on the curse of the law that comes in with the giving of the law, because, because that's when the people say they don't want to hear God. They need a mediator. So maybe be Paul reflecting on that as he's been talking about that in this chapter. So that then when he speaks about there being no mediator now, of course, between God and Christ, ultimately between God and the seed, so that Christ is God he is still making a relative contrast to that period of the law. So I think what you have here, my suggestion, is that you have continuity with discontinuity. Okay. The mediator of the law provides a continuity, looking forward to the mediator in Christ, but it suggests in the text some discontinuity between uh, the giving of the promise. Well, there was another aspect of this that we started to focus on last week, and I know I, knew, I, I left a few of you in the dark, and I, and I need to uh, follow up on this um, to, uh, to make some sense of this, the, the verses that follow. And that is, we were talking about um, the new perspective on Paul And one of the things the new perspective on Paul denies, ultimately, is that there is an absolute contrast between the work that has come in Christ and the law. And, in other words, what the new perspective denies is it denies that the law requires strict and absolute perfect obedience. Okay? Put it, in, put it another way. Isn't it true that if, there is, if Christ brings the gospel of grace to the Gentiles, there is an absolute contrast between the salvation he has brought and the sinfulness and the damnation that the wicked have? Isn't that Right? If you come to an unbeliever, do you say, well, you're kind of in sins and darkness? No. You tell them they're completely in bondage to sin under the power of the devil, right? And absolutely under the curse of God, deserving eternal judgment. So there's an absolute contrast, as there is in final eschatology, of absolute contrast between heaven and hell, Right? And Christ's gospel is an intrusion of heaven into history. And you, unbeliever, you're under the wrath of God, on the way to hell. All right? So there is an absolute contrast between this message and your state of rebellion and your state of curse. And if that's true, it requires an absolutely perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, the new perspective denies this. Um, let Let me suggest to you something else that this implies. If this person is absolutely under the judgment of God and absolutely under his curse and condemnation, he's certainly a rebel against God. What would he need in order to be acceptable before God? God is a perfectly holy and just God. Is God satisfied with just a little bit of righteousness? Even if the unbeliever could come up with a little bit of righteousness, would that be satisfying to a holy God? No. Of course, he can't. But nonetheless, even a little bit of righteousness wouldn't be satisfactory, would it? He needs complete perfection to match the holiness of a perfect God. In other words, he has to be completely and perfectly obedient to the law of God, doesn't he? In order to be pleasing to God. And so, what Paul ultimately implies when he talks, when he makes his quotation in Galatians 3.12 of Leviticus 18.5, is that the man who does these things perfectly will have life by them. The man who does these things perfectly will have ultimate life by them, hypothetically. The man who does these things perfectly will have eschatological life, eternal life. And so that suggests that Christ must have been perfectly obedient to that law, right? Because doesn't he bring us eternal life? If if he wasn't perfectly obedient to that law, could he bear curse for us? If he was simply a man and he was imperfectly obedient, could he bear curse for us? No, he couldn't, could he? Because if he were an imperfect human being, he would still be under the wrath and curse of God himself, wouldn't he? So he couldn't bear eternal wrath for us. So he has to be perfectly obedient to the law. Now there's some texts in Galatians that I think suggests this. Uh, Galatians 5, 2-4. Somebody want to read that for us?
1: Mark my words, I Paul tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised,
0: Christ will be of no
1: value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law.
0: Okay, go a little farther, read through verse 4.
1: You are trying to be justified by law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace.
0: Okay. Now, people in the New Perspective, when they look at this verse, verse 3, they say, I testify that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. They just think, a person who is separated from Christ, who doesn't want to trust in Christ, he's just obligated to keep the law extensively. In other words, he's required to keep the moral and the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. But for them, the text isn't saying, he has to keep it perfectly. He just has to keep all parts of it. Imperfectly. But does that match what Paul is saying here? You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified from law. You have fallen from grace. You've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified from law. You have fallen from grace. Now, this person who goes back to the law and just keeps it extensively, okay? Was Peter Hat was Paul happy with a person like that? Isn't that what Peter was trying to do when he went and ate and drank separately from the Gentiles? He was trying to keep the law extensively. Was that satisfactory? No. So what he's suggesting here is a person who even tries to do that, as many Jews thought they were trying to keep it extensively, that's not satisfactory, because if you do that, even if you go back to that in some sort of extensive way, you have fallen from Christ, you're seeking to be justified by works. You've fallen from Christ. And for Paul, if you've fallen from Christ, you've fallen from grace, right? There is no grace for you Jew who tries to keep the law extensively now. If you fall from Christ, you fall from grace. You fall from grace. Well, the Jews at the time, they're thinking, well, if we keep the law extensively, we've got grace. Okay? And that's why we don't have to keep it perfectly. But Paul's saying, that won't do. You've fallen from grace altogether. Okay? Okay? And so I would suggest to you that the Puritans were right to say that this text, the texts in Galatians that talk about obedience to the law ultimately require perfect obedience to the law because they're ultimately requiring talking about eternal life. And that'll be somewhat significant as we think about Galatians 3.19 through 25. Well, there's one other thing I want to point out to you here. If it's true that obedience to the law is required, perfect obedience to the law is required, then when Paul makes a contrast between faith alone and works of the law, works of law, is there some sense in which he is contrasting faith? Two, works of the law absolutely speaking. Okay? If you were required to keep the law perfectly, all right, and here you have the works of the law that you're required to perform perfectly, and Paul's saying that's not possible, then that's contrasted to faith alone. All right. Faith alone. Faith being the only instrument of your justification. Let me put it another way. Because these people in the New Perspective think that works only has to do with imperfect works, okay? they think it's only imperfect works that the Jews have to keep. Then they look at the faith that has come As not necessarily distinguishable from Christian works For them, it's faith plus Christian works, you might say Versus the Old Testament works, ceremonial works Okay, Specifically focusing on ceremonial works and and circumcision So it's faith and Christian works versus ceremonial works of the law Paul is not oppose, He is not opposing faith to works per se for them. Okay, he's only opposing it to the works of the Old Testament law, and therefore they don't think that faith alone is the alone instrument of receiving justification. Now I should make your, you know, bring hackles. Okay, bring, make you realize there's something wrong with this view. Okay. And what's partially wrong is they don't see that Paul is making an absolute contrast to works per se. Okay? See, that's what I've been trying to say. That Paul does have this absolute contrast of faith to works per se. A person who's under the judgment of God, absolutely speaking. So, remember I've suggested to you that part of Paul's contrast is he is contrasting, he is speaking about the Gentiles also being under law, right? Is he not speaking about the Gentiles being under law in some sense? He redeemed those who were under law in order that, you see, we might receive the gift of life in him. He redeemed, Christ redeemed those under law, 3.13. thirteen. Right? He'll say the same thing in chapter 4. He redeemed those under law in order that we, we might receive the adoption of sons. In some sense, the Gentile is under law. In right? some sense, the Gentile is under law. And he's under law in absolute antithesis to the glory of the kingdom of God, isn't he? Is he keeping the law at all perfectly, imperfectly? In a way pleasing to God? No. Is he keeping it in a way that righteous David would have kept it in the Old Testament? No. Definitely not, right? He's under the absolute wrath and curse of God, absolutely separated from God. There's an absolute contrast between the kingdom of God and being under the law as a Gentile. And so this is works of the law per se, Jewish works of the law. I mean, Gentile works of the law. If a Gentile were to seek, say, hey, I'm obedient to God, I'm doing all that even natural law requires, as some of the Romans may have thought, no, that's not acceptable to God. You cannot do that. You're unable to do that. You're under the wrath of God. So again, we have this contrast between faith and the works of the law. You see, this is a gospel to Gentiles as well as to Jews. And so the same gospel relates to them both. Now, I'm going to... One more thing here, I've, and, and then we're going to get to the te- directly to the text in Galatians 3.19. I've suggested to you this absolute contrast to the Gentile world. You see the problems that the new perspective has because they reject it, right? They reject this absolute contrast. And therefore, huh, faith and Christian works. They don't see it as a contrast of works per se. And they just see Paul as criticizing going back into the ceremonial law. So they don't have this absolute contrast. So some people have come along and figured the best way to deal with the new perspective is to say that Paul is only speaking about this absolute contrast. He is only speaking about this absolute contrast. And and one writer says it this way, that he's not talking about Jews in the Old Testament period being under the law, He's not talking about Jews in the Old Testament period being under the law in any way. Because wouldn't it be true that these Jews, like David, were men of faith? And he is contrasting faith to works of the law. And I certainly commend them for uh, rebuking the new perspective. And ultimately, they're right in this absolute sense. But I don't think they've caught the full sense of it, in my view. In other words, faith is contrasted to the works of the law, absolutely in one sense, but this text also talks about a relative contrast of greater faith to a period under tutelage and curse. It also speaks of this matter of faith versus works of the law in a more relative contrast so that one even like David can in some sense be under the law as a tutor waiting for the greater age of faith and we've already and i, I hope to show you that as we look at galatians 3:19 to 20 we've already looked at galatians 3:10 through 12 all right where those under The law, okay, Christ became a curse for those under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And it seems like he's talking about a historical newness that we might receive the gift of the Spirit in the new age. You see, if if he's talking there about a way in which we've now received the gift of the Spirit in a new way in Christ, since the day of Pentecost, and he's saying, that's as a result of Christ bearing this curse of the law, then isn't he saying that it was the curse of the law even upon Israel, which kept the fullness of the age of the Spirit coming? You see, that curse in the land, that land where the Spirit dwelt, even, that curse in the land kept the fullness of the age of the Spirit from coming in Christ. Okay. Didn't forbid it from coming in Christ, but kept it from coming, all right? That curse kept the fullness of the age of the Spirit coming, and now that Christ has borne that curse, he has brought the fullness of the age of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. So what I am suggesting to you, and I hope we see this as we go further, is that when Paul uses the term under law, you see it can have it's a universal category it's a universal category it doesn't have it, it refers to different groups of people under that jews even converted jews according to the old testament sense jews who are unbelievers you know unconverted jews as well as gentiles gentiles that were near the land of Israel, and they were separated from those blessings because of the curse that separated them from those blessings, as well as Gentiles who were way far off. There's different senses in which all these people under the law. And I say that because the text implies there are various different people under the law in various different ways. And this gospel you see, which comes in Christ, is a gospel to all these Jews and Gentiles. It brings a newness of salvation to the converted Jews. It brings salvation in the absolute sense to the rest. And even to those proselyte Gentiles, like Cornelius, it brings the newness of salvation to them in a new way, too. Well let's let's uh any questions about that? Well let me let me let me read to you one passage to show you how you can have a text which talks about uses the language of an absolute contrast and you know that in a sense it's a relative contrast, all right? Second Corinthians three ten. and then then we'll look at the verses that surround it. Somebody want to read for us 3.10. Indeed,
2: what had glory, in this case, has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it.
0: Okay. What had glory has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. So, we could look about this. He's talking about the Old Covenant here. What had glory, has no glory at all, now, absolutely none, on account of the glory that surpasses it. Now he's certainly clearly making, one thing's clear, he's contrasting the present glory of the new covenant to the present uh, participation in the law, if one were to go back to the law in the Old Testament sense. Okay, that's clear. It now has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. It may be that Paul is also saying even that which then was has no glory by comparison to the glory that surpasses it. That's a possibility. But at any rate, he does make an absolute contrast between this glory that is now and saying it has no glory at all compared to the glory that surpasses it. And around that, you can see that he's using language, though, of a relative contrast. Verses 7 through 11. Somebody would read that for us.
2: Okay. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came this glory so that the children of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more (coughs) For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory.
0: Okay, that's fine. Um, So notice, he has this much more language in verse 9. If the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. And verse 8, it said, had been with more glory. Okay, Abounding with glory and more glory. There he is making a relative contrast between the glory that was of the old covenant and the greater glory that is in the new covenant. And then in the next verse, which we read first, he then says, but now that the glory that exceeds means there's no glory now to the older on account of the glory that surpasses. They're now making an absolute contrast. All right. So what I'm suggesting to you is that Paul thinks in this way where you can think both in terms, he can think of the glory of the new age in Christ presenting something that is, Surpassing the glory of the old covenant, and now, and, and also, now certainly that the, the new covenant, this glory has come, means there's no glory to that left over. Okay, so now we've got that absolute contrast. And I'm suggesting to you that he's doing something similar in Galatians 3. Well, unless there's any questions, we'll move on to Galatians three twenty-one and following. First, I want to take a look um, on section five of your outline here. Just a brief overview of a theme in Galatians three twenty-one to four seven. We're back in Galatians, and uh, remember, uh, we we're talking about this new. Reality in Christ being the inheritance. Being the new inheritance. The inheritance given to sons. And we had this language in 3.8. If the inheritance is by law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by means of promise. God gave it to Abraham. God promised Abraham the inheritance. And therefore... The ultimate, final inheritance cannot come by law. It cannot come by law. And he continues with this theme, though, in the section that we're looking at here. Looking at verse 29 of chapter 3, he concludes this discussion with, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heirs of the inheritance. Then... Look at the next section Chapter 4 verses 1 to 7 This is kind of a hook word Heir Because in 4.1 he goes Now I say as long as the heir is a child He does not differ at all from a slave Though he is owner of everything So he's talking about heirship And then how does he conclude it In verse 7 He says Therefore you are no longer a slave But a son And then an heir Through God Okay so you are the heirs of the promises made to Abraham. Now, we're going to look more specifically at chapter 3, verses 21 to 29. And... Um, I'm going to have somebody read that for us so that we we've got it fresh in our minds. So there's somebody. Um, actually, we don't have to have somebody read the the entire thing. Somebody could read for us 21 through 22.
2: but certainly have come by the law. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe.
0: And verses 23 to 25.
3: Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law.
0: Okay, and so in verses 26 through 29.
1: You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay, thank you.
0: All right. um, Now, what I'd like to do is kind of summarize for you what I'd like us to see. I'm going to summarize for you what I'd like us to see in in these verses, and then we'll, well, we'll go through it, okay? In other words, I think what you have here in these verses is you have some contrast between the two eras in the history of redemption, okay? Some contrast. But you also have some continuity, all right? Some similarities. So first, the contrast. All right, there's, there's ways in this text that support the idea that there's a contrast. First of all, and we'll go over each of these, the way the rhetorical question is set up, I think, presupposes some degree of contrast. And then you have the bondage character of the law, contrasted to the freedom in Christ. And then you also have this coming of the age of faith, which suggests a greater age of faith than the old era. And then toward the end, you have the fact that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Ah, wasn't there a distinction between Jew and Gentile in the Old Covenant? Yes. Yes. No distinction between male and female, slave and free. We'll get to those. So those are some of the relative contrasts between the Old covenant. But you also have continuity here between the old covenant and the new. Okay? You have continuity. For instance, the answer to the question, Is the law therefore against the promises of God? May it never be. Is going to presume some continuity especially when it was the Scriptures that made the promise to Abraham that foresaw this, which also put all under bondage to sin, in order that the uh, righteousness of faith might come. And I'm going to suggest to you something that is not as popular today, but was amongst the older Puritans, is that the law is also a positive pedagogue to lead us to Christ. It is a positive pedagogue in the sense that the law here includes the ceremonial law which positively foreshadows and looks ahead to Christ. Okay. So let's let's go through each of those those aspects here. So first of all, on the one hand you have some contrast between the two eras in the history of redemption. And I'm suggesting to you that that's partially the way the rhetorical question is set up here. Look at verse 21: Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Now, usually when Paul has a rhetorical question like this, where he says, "Is such and such and such and such the case? May it never be." He's responding to a possible misunderstanding of what he'd said before. Okay. Because what's happening is it's possible that someone might take what he said before too far. And he wants to keep them from going too far. All right. And so in that sense, you see, I'm suggesting to you that he has therefore indicated some discontinuity between the law and the promise, which then might make someone go too far. And say, well, then, is the law opposed to the promise of God? And he then says, may it never be. Okay, now you can see, There's some. I'll give you a few examples of where Paul does this in his rhetorical questions elsewhere. All right, look at uh, Romans 5 twenty through six two. Somebody want to read that for us. <laughs> See? You?
1: The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where it soon increased. Grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may
0: increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Okay. So you've got these statements in 520 and 21. The law came in to increase the transgression. Okay, so it increased transgression, and where there's an increase of transgression, you get grace abounding all the more. Okay, so in the new age, grace abounds, abounds more, partially as a setback to the increase of transgression. Okay, the law comes in to increase the transgression to show the abounding of grace. Right? So then, you see, somebody might think, well, if that's the case, let's sin now. You know, if, if, that, if sinning then brought greater abounding of grace in the new, well, let's sin now that grace might abound. You see how that's a misappropriation, misinterpretation of what Paul had said? They're taking Paul to... In an extreme way That he hadn't intended So he says, may it never be Okay Shall we who died to sin Live in it any longer But my point is also That it's not like He had just talked You know, about some general stuff Like the weather And then suddenly has this question Shall we, you know, sin that grace might abound In other words, he, he's not having Just some general conversation that doesn't provoke the question. It is what he said before that actually provokes the question. All right? And the same thing is found in Romans 7, 5-7. to Someone read that for us.
2: For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet.
0: Okay. Now you see the rhetorical question there. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That, that's a question that's provoked by what he had just said. All right? Because what he had just said was, in effect... That the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members for death. The law aroused sinful passions. Okay? And so then someone might draw the unwarranted conclusion that therefore the law is sin, right? Because it arouses sinful passions. And he says, no, that's not the case. Let me be clearer and more precise about the relationship. Okay? And so when we go back to our text, I'm suggesting something similar in Galatians. You go to verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God May it never be. This seems to imply that he is saying something earlier that might make someone think, inappropriately though, make somebody think that the law is opposed to the promises of God. Okay? And I'm going to say make someone think that they're absolutely opposed to the promises of God. You see, that the law is absolutely opposed to the promises of God. And I would say he is making that statement as a response to what he said before. Okay? And my suggestion to you is what he's implied before, therefore, is that there is some relative contrast between the law and the fulfillment of the promise. In other words, I'm suggesting that the prior material is suggesting a relative contrast between the law and the promise. So that then someone might run to an unwarranted conclusion and take it farther and say, well, then is the law entirely against the promises of God? Is it opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely speaking. And then he's going to say no. No. No, it does not nullify the promises of God because a law was not able to give life. If the law was able to give life, then righteousness would have come by the law. That is, the age of the kingdom would have come by the law. If the law could have brought the eschatological life, then this age of righteousness would have come by the law. Okay. And so, when I say, you see that relative contrast... You see, he, he has spoken earlier, remember, in Galatians 3.12, the righteousness which is of the law says, the one who does these things shall live by them, okay? And he set up what I'm suggesting is a relative contrast to the age of faith and grace, okay? So he set up a contrast there, And that ultimately provokes this question. Now, that relative contrast, I'm suggesting he sets up when he says, you see, the the man who does these things shall live by them. That cannot be fulfilled. Okay, it cannot be fulfilled. Because what Paul is going to recognize in Romans 7.10 is that the commandment which was unto life, okay, which was unto life, that is, that gives a promise of life, Leviticus 18.5, Galatians 3.12, is in relative contrast to the present era. That is, instead, it was found to bring death. The commandment which was unto life is actually found to bring death. And that's because, Romans 8.3, what the law could not do, weak as it was by the flesh... You see, this is what he's saying here. If there was a commandment which was able to bring life, it's not able. He's talking about the impotence of the law. You see. The law could not do it because it was weak by the flesh and connected with the flesh in sinful inadequacy and the curse resulting from that inadequacy. And so, I'm suggesting to you that you see the verses that come before this, 421, suggest some relative contrast. All right. So, um, we've already looked back at 16 for the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not see, this is verse 16, and to his seeds, referring to many, but rather to his seed, which is one Christ. So the promises were not to many in Israel. The ultimate promise was not to the many that they should do these things and thereby live by them, but to one Christ. What I'm saying in verse 17 is the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, okay? So as to nullify the promise. You see, this isn't able to nullify the promise. That's why it doesn't nullify the promise. It's not able to. It's not able to bring eschatological life. But it does promise life, but not able to bring it. And so then, he's going to say, as he follows on, for if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. If the inheritance is based on law, if it's it's based on that promise in Leviticus 18:5 that the man who does these things shall live by them. If it's based on that, if it's based on that promise or that law, you see, it's not going to come by promise, right? The man who does these things shall live by them. If Israel was, if supposedly Israel is obedient to the law and lives by it and brings eschatological life, wouldn't that support the promise? If Israel could bring in the kingdom of God, sure, that would thwart the promise. But it's impossible. You see, it's impossible. Because the law cannot do that. It's weak by the flesh. It's not able to bring life. It's impotent. That's the point. But it still makes a promise, which is in relative contrast to the to the reality. Okay. And then if we take it in the Puritan way... Where there's there's an absolute promise of eternal life implied here, you see. That's what would need, you see, taken take in its ultimate eschatological sense. Because he's talking about ultimately bringing eschatological life, right? What would be required to bring absolute, eternal, eschatological life? Just imperfect obedience? Absolute. Absolute perfect obedience, right? Impotent man unable to accomplish that and already under the burden of the curse. Okay, so he cannot bring it But it does express this contrast Now even in an absolute sense You see, when you you see it in its full ramification Of the absolute requirement of perfect obedience Then he goes, why then the law was added because of transgressions Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come, to whom the promise had been made. And so here it may be that you see why the law, it was added to provoke transgressions uh, as part of this aspect of the provoking transgression and disobedience, but not for the purpose of actually bringing life, is it? Because God did not, there is the law couldn't bring life, you see? So it wasn't for that purpose. Yes? How do you answer someone who said, Psalm, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Well, I would say that he is focusing on that continuity now, you see. This is this is the, the uniqueness here. You've got this discontinuity and this continuity. In other words, the Mosaic Covenant here, as we're going to see later on, there's the gracious aspect of the law too, okay? That the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of grace given to the people of Israel, all right? by which they should trust in their Redeemer to come. And it has many of these sacrifices and so forth, which represent Him in it, and actually promise to the people of God in Israel that if they trust in the promises of God, that they lay hold of those promises through the sacraments that they're given there, uh, by faith, of course, and, and, and participate in those, through those things they will receive life, right? And so then it is converting the soul. It's a matter of grace, in the heart. and so the man in Re- in, in Romans 7 the same the, i joyfully rejoice in the you know i joyfully concur in the law of god and the inner man is a blessed thing leading me on to the kingdom to come you see but what i'm trying to suggest to you is that paul is working on such a way as to express both continuity and discontinuity at the same time now we're folk. right now we're focusing on the discontinuity aspects but there's also the continuity, okay? So, um, then some elements here in 19 may suggest you see some discontinuity there, and that's why provoking that question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? If that's what the case is, may it never be, you see? Because something in what he said before provokes this question, and he, and he responds, no, it's not contrary to the promises of God, because the law is not able to bring life, you see? And so, in other words, the, the law, put it, put it this way, to think of it another way, think of it in terms of the rhetorical question itself. Is the law against the promises of God? What are the promises of God in this context? Aren't they the promise of bringing in the inheritance, the inheritance promise to Abraham? The age of the great inheritance? Are is the law contrary to those promises? May it never be. Because the law was not able to bring life. It was not able to bring this eschatological life. Okay? So the promise is the promise of the inheritance, 3.18. You see, it's the promise of this inheritance. It is the promised spirit, 3.14, right? The promised spirit given to the Gentiles. That is the age of the spirit. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God looking to the age of the spirit? May it never be, because the law could not bring in that age of the spirit. So, the law could not undermine the promise. Contrary to the Judaizers, right? Because, in effect, if the Judaizers go back to the law now, they are making it into something that is contrary to the promises, right? They are making it into a form of absolute works righteousness which they are able to do. Isn't that what a Judaizer assumes? I have the power to perform this in such a way that God will be pleased, I and the nation of Israel perhaps, in such a way that God will be pleased and bring his kingdom of peace to us. And so works by which you are able. Would such a a view of the law. If this were the law, would it not be contrary to the promises of God? Absolutely. Absolutely contrary to the promises of God, right? As if God were saying, you're able to do this, and I'm giving you a law by which you might actually do it, but on the other hand, I'm promising it without your doing it. Okay? No, no, no. Those two are at absolute antithesis. Okay? Okay? Because this promise is sure The promise is sure that it will come apart from law It will come through Christ, right? That promise is sure So if there's any other possibility That it might come some other way That would undermine the promise Right? It might not come through the promise It might come through this way But God's guaranteed it's going to come through the promise Right? Okay? So this way the Judaizers looking at the works of the law Is, is contrary to the promises of God and, and Paul says no The law is not contrary to the promises of God It is not able to bring life If it were Then righteousness would come by the law That is the age of righteousness Would come by the law The age of righteousness Would come by the law Ultimately, he's talking about this age being the age in which there is a fullness of justification in the resurrection of Christ. See? Because that's the way he puts the language together. All right. So instead, what we have here... Is we have this result is that it ultimately, instead, the law imprisons. The law imprisons. Okay. All men under sin; that the righteousness of Christ and faith in Christ might come to those who believe. Is another way of putting it. The law imprisons, and we're going to look after we take our break at some of the aspects of what that might mean. But in in short, in some sense, I'm going to suggest that even righteous Israel in some way is under custody of the law, in some sense enslaved insofar as they're under the curse of the law, visually, visibly speaking. But the Gentiles, absolutely. It enslaves them, absolutely speaking. That the promise, of and ultimately, because it requires absolute perfect obedience, ultimately, It makes it impossible for anyone to bring the promised kingdom of God, except the seed, you see, to whom the promise is made. All right, well, let's take a break. Okay, now I'd like us to look <coughs> at the uh, the bondage character of the law uh, in these verses. But first, um, I want us to look at the broader structure of verses 22 to 25, since we're going to be looking at those. Um, and uh, so, take a look at the uh, the last page of your handout. And on that last page, you should see a set of terms. I had one myself. I don't know where it went. But, uh, well, someone have it, have a handout because uh, I, I don't know why I don't have mine right now. Thanks. Uh, You'll notice that uh, just for the general structure of the sentences, I want you to see that each of these verses is like an individual thought, almost. Okay? Um, And it would probably be a little clearer if you shoved the word law a little bit over to the right. I realize that a little later. But notice that on the first one you you have an in order that clause. And that is on one side here at the top, and then toward almost toward the bottom, in order that. You've got a couple sentences with in order that's in them. In order that the promise by faith might come in Christ Jesus to those who believe. On the top. In order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, later on. Then uh, you have, if you will, uh, this comparison between in order that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ... Uh, under the law, kept in custody for the coming faith. See, the faith to be revealed. The law being a pedagogue to Christ. Okay? And so, you in each movement, you've got this movement from promise to faith to Jesus Christ to that which is revealed to Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, and remember... Uh, So as we go through each of these, I'm going to show you those comparisons a little bit. So I just wanted you to get the bigger picture uh, in mind. Go ahead, Jeff, thanks. Now, um, first of all, there's the bondage character of the law. And what you'll notice is that he says in verse 23... Uh, But before faith came, we're kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which would later be revealed. And here, it says, you might say we're kept under custody under the law. Well, this is comparable to verse 22, where he speaks about shutting up all men under sin. Under sin. So you have this aspect of the law coming in all people being under law is being under sin. So the idea of the law perhaps provoking sin, you see, so that people are shut up under sin, if you will. Um, and so again, a negative aspect of the law. Uh, and this uh, aspect, I would, I'm going to suggest to you that, that uh, there's a couple ways in which we can look at this. Uh, because there's a contrast here, and I've suggested to you that there's both a relative and absolute contrast, so that for those, if you will, who lived under the age of the law, they're shut up under sin in the sense that what's happening in Romans 7 is happening to them. The law provokes sin, even to those in Israel to some extent. Okay, Provokes sin even to the saints. Uh so that there is a sense in which they are under bondage to sin, relatively speaking. That is, compared to the greater liberty that has come in the New Age. All right, They are, relatively speaking, under bondage in the sense that it is provoking them more to sin with it looking at, you know, they're seeking to do these commandments ultimately for the praise and glory of God, but also for the removal of this curse in this land. And and, and this is provoking them, to some extent, under sin. But, ultimately, he's speaking about that absolute requirement of perfect obedience. Right? And so, all men ultimately recognize that they're ultimately required to obey perfectly both Jews and Gentiles and they know that it's impossible so they are shut up unto Christ to come they are absolutely shut up so that it is impossible for any other way of salvation but to come but Christ but at least i want you to see that the that there's a pedagogue here has this negative aspect okay it's not just a positive aspect it's a negative one as well and uh, you can see that he's actually interpreting the pedagogue in this fashion. Because he says, he begins verse 22 with a conclusion. Therefore, um, excuse me, he begins uh, verse, verse 24 with a conclusion. Okay, Verse 24 is a conclusion to verses 22 and 23, which talk about this being under sin and being under the law. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. So therefore the law being a tutor, he said, you see, he's talked about being under sin, under law, and therefore, therefore, these little three signs mean therefore, okay? That is the law is a tutor or pedagogue. So that must mean the law is a pedagogue or tutor to lead us to Christ in the negative function that it you know that gives, that it that shuts us up unto sin, you see, and realizes there's nothing that we can do except flee to Christ. And so this makes even the Old Testament saints look for the coming of Christ, because they feel the sense of even a weight of sin uh, by the work of the law that will be reversed even for greater glory and liberty in the New Covenant. Now, uh, I have that because there is verse 25... But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. It's that language of under, you see. So it's before the coming of Christ, before his coming, we are under a tutor. So this suggests that even the Old Covenant saints, in some sense, are under a tutor. They are before the coming of Christ. And so. Now that faith has come Now in history that faith has come We are no longer under a tutor So for the Old Testament saints They're not under the tutor in the sense that they were before That is, they are not living out the types and shadows of the Old Covenant And we who are in Christ Are not absolutely under the wrath and curse of God either We, are un, we live in the life that is above But it has some sort of historical vector So I'm suggesting to you it is also in relative contrast to the Old Covenant. The coming of faith. And and that's what we have going on here. We've got a contrast to the coming of faith. All right? That's that's what he's doing. He says, see, in verse 23, before faith came, right? Right? We got that language in verse 23. Before faith came. Well, what is that word familiar, comparable to? Before faith came. We got before faith came. Faith came. We have that same verb used earlier uh, in this chapter. Does anyone see it in what we talked about last week? Verse 19 Until the seed should come, to whom the promise had been made, to whom the seed should come. This is clearly a historical coming. And then he says, before faith came. The two go together as historical. Also, verse 25. But now that faith has come, now that faith has come, you see. We are no longer under a tutor. So, all this (laughs) points to this historical dimension where there is greater faith in the New Age. The greater faith that has come. And that is the faith by which we are justified. Verse 24, that we might be justified by faith. Okay, it's not just simply talking about the faith in the objective sense of the faith of Christ, the faith about Christ, but it's also talking about the subjective aspect of faith. All right, justified by faith. It's before faith came. Is he saying before faith was experienced in its full sense? You see, he? Because he's not denying that the Old Testament saints experienced faith. He talks about just David being justified by faith in Romans 4. So here, but he's talking in some way as if before faith came. Now, it all sounds like an absolute contrast, doesn't it? It almost sounds like an absolute contrast that there was no faith before. But he's not saying that, is he? He's got other places where he's made a contrast, right? We saw that there is no glory by comparison to the glory that that surpasses it, okay? So here he's talking, I would suggest, about a relative sense, a greater sense of faith, by which there is a fuller participation that we might be justified by faith. So he's going back to his his discussion earlier, in a sense, back to when he made those contrasts between Leviticus 18.5 and Habakkuk 2.4, where he says, The man who does these things shall live by them. But Habakkuk looks to the eschatological future. He looks to the future age. The man who does these things shall be lived by the. No. It is he who trusts. Okay? The righteous shall be justified by faith. And then we see at the end of Habakkuk's prophecy in chapter 3, verses 17 and so forth, that though the fig tree should not uh, you know, bear fruit and there be no uh, uh, grapes upon the vines, yet I will trust in the Lord. All right? There was some sense in which life was partially by sight, was there not? Partially. Participate and see at least the blessings of God if the theocracy worked out. But it didn't. The sin and judgment upon that land, you see, And therefore, God will now vindicate his people by laying hold of that which is invisible, that which is eternal, in a greater way, in which there's a greater faith, which looks more fully to those things which are unseen. And I believe that this is probably what he has in mind in light of the context here in Galatians 3. Looking back to the earlier part of the chapter.
3: Yeah. So you don't think he's talking about the object of faith, namely Christ coming? No, I don't I don't want to disagree with that. I agree with
0: that. I think he is talking about the faith, but it's not simply that. In other words, I don't think it's just simply the object. I think it's the object coming. And thus, our identification with the object, our participation in the object, is more profound. The faith is more profound with the coming of the seed. That's my suggestion. In other words, I, I, I think that, he's, that the language here that we might be justified by faith, you see, is in 24, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Now, now that faith has come... Yes, he's ultimately talking about the seed, and I and I want to get to the comparison there, okay? Because the seed comes, and the apocalyptic of the seed. Okay, Uh, my only point was to try to say it's it's not simply some abstraction that now that the age, the day, uh, the the faith has come, uh, in some uh, the objective sense, without there being some sort of subjective identification with that that's also greater.
3: But you are possible to read that before faith comes, before the seed who is the object of the promise of faith comes.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because that language of coming is going to be in here and the apocalyptic part of it. Okay. Um, well, let's, let's take a look at that. Okay. Um, in fact... Looking at verses 23 and 25, you have faith coming, and now that faith has come, and this is bracket around, okay, verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under custody, being shut up to that which was later to be revealed. Shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Okay. And here... We have the language of apocalypto, the faith to be revealed. Okay? The faith to be revealed. And it is the about to be revealed. Okay? We're shut up to the faith that's about to be revealed. And so, this language, though it's not the same verb of to come, it has some similarities. It's that which is about to be, in between these two verbs of coming, and that which is to be revealed. Now, who is he who is to be revealed? Christ, Christ, right? Christ is the one that Paul saw on the road to Damascus, One sixteen, He revealed his Son in me. Right? He revealed His Son in me. And so, here we have um, you know, what Jim is wanting to emphasize here, which is the objective aspect of the faith. All right? The coming of the faith. The coming of the seed. The revelation of the great age of faith. As I suggested to you, when Paul sees the Son of God, you see, on the road to Damascus, he is conformed to the Son of God. He is conformed to the one who has now come and has died and has been raised from the dead. So that he is Son manifest in his full sonship in the resurrection. And in that resurrection, you see, he has revealed this new age this new age of a greater justification by grace through faith. And I qualify that. Okay? You know, I've made these two circles here for you. I am not saying there's a, anything essentially different between the justification that David has, or you and I have, before the throne of God, objectively speaking. Could There, there could not be. Because... God does not accept imperfect righteousness before his throne, right? And so if there was anything imperfect ultimately about the righteousness of David, David would be cast out from his presence, right? There's no degree of righteousness in terms of that justification. But I'm speaking of the manifestation of that righteousness. As the Son actually comes in redemptive history, you see as he is the focus of the faith, as he is the one who has come and been justified in his resurrection, we have simply the fuller manifestation of that justification, which was true for old covenant saints as well, now just fully more manifested, manifested in the life of the church in the sense of not being under the curses of the covenant not living in the land of inheritance of Israel, but having a greater participation in the inheritances above, which is without curse eternal in the heavens. Yes?
3: Then are the Judaizers rejecting the sonship of Christ, the deity,
0: the divine sonship of Christ? I think ultimately they are. Ultimately, they are. You're running
3: this through the key of the Son of God in His manifestation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then is this what's under the surface Mm -hmm. here in Galatia? It's not just about the law; it's about who Christ is and what He is in relationship to the law and the promise. It runs through the seed. Is you know, is that? A misconception, or that's a problem, or an objection that the Judaizers have.
0: Yeah, I think I think your old <laughs> it is. Because, uh, you know, and you're you're pressing it well because uh, the, they they have this. You, you asked me to. You put Son of God right up. I want I that. For. I want you to press me. Okay. You, you keep pushing me. All right. Yeah. Ultimately, what are they saying? What is Paul saying about their theology? I am able to keep the law of God. Isn't that what they're saying? If there was a law which was able to bring life, then righteousness would come by the law. I am able, the power is within me. So, who is God? Me. right? I am God. I can do it. So this, ultimately, is the heinousness of all unbelief, all the fallen nature of mankind In rebellion against the living God And here we have Instead the revelation Of God himself Right The revelation of the son of God And he's going to talk in the next chapter about him being Son before being sent His eternal sonship Okay And therefore it is all of God's power Right, The impotence of the law But the power of of God and Jesus Christ. So implicitly they're denying the deity of Christ? I think so. Now, so what I'm suggesting to you is there's the coming of the seed with an eschatological revelation. Coming of the seed with an apocalyptic. What's the apocalyptic of? What's an apocalyptic reveal? The glory of God, right? The glory of God. The glory of God revealed in His Son to whom the promise has been made. Well, there is also a greater union between the Jew, the Gentile, slave and free, male and female in this chapter, now in Christ. Looking toward verse 27. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. No Jew or Greek, slave or free. Remember, this chapter was talking about the inheritance? Verse 25, he's going to say that you're all heirs according to promise in Paul. Paul's going to say that in Christ Jesus, you're heirs according to promise. Well, then, what's he saying? What about the inheritance of the Old Covenant? The inheritance, at least insofar as it's manifested in the land. They have the inheritance above by faith, truly. But their inheritance is also manifested in the land. Is there a distinction between Jew and Greek in terms of this inheritance? Yes. And you've got to be circumcised if you want to get full rights to that inheritance, right? What about male and female? Who usually inherits? The male, occasionally a female, but usually the male. What about the slave and the free man? The free man has the, the rights of inheritance. The slave, at least now, for now, does not. Right? So, in terms of inheritance rights, not the fullness of inheritance rights. Now in Christ Jesus, you are all made equal heirs. In Christ in the one seed, Jesus Christ. Now, in Romans, Paul will, in fact, talk about this as against boasting. Whereas boasting is excluded by the law? But no, but by the law of faith. There is a greater degree of humility before the throne of God. There may be some degree of boasting that might... I mean, God delivered His people from boasting and arrogance under the law, but there's still some degree of, yes, I've got what you don't have. Right? Here, that is done away with. Humility before the throne of God. Humility before the throne of God brought together with the apocalypse of the Son of God. Can you be arrogant before the throne of God? Do you have any rights above anyone else before the throne of God? No. If you are justified in Christ, you all have equal rights because of what Christ did. Not because of anything you did. (coughs) And notice... Notice how this language here is sandwiched in between verses 26 to 28. In 26, we have, for you are all, or for all in the Greek. 28, there is neither slave nor free Jew nor Greek. For, at the end of verse 28, you are all. You for all. So you've got this language, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Then bracketed with, For you are all one in Christ. Okay. Here you have all sons of God in Christ and one in Christ. And he draws this conclusion about sons of God from the conclusion that he had drawn, but now that faith has come, you're no longer under a tutor. But you're a son. You're a son in a greater way. A greater participation in the inheritance of God. And hasn't this other verse that we looked at, no distinction between Jew, Jew and Gentile, male or female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus? That's also talked about a greater participation in Oneness. Okay. No distinctions. All one in union with Christ. As if there is a greater participation in the union. No distinction between these because you are all one in Christ in a greater way. If the reason is, if the premise is you're one and therefore no distinctions, you say, then it must be a oneness in a fuller way. Because this fuller sense of oneness decides no distinctions. Okay, one in big letters implies no distinction. Distinction. Okay. Implies no distinction. Therefore, no distinction. Because you're one in Christ Jesus. So, though they were one before in Christ... There was distinction. So this must suggest a greater oneness. A greater oneness in Christ Jesus. Just as he has spoken about a greater sonship in Christ Jesus, relatively speaking. And it is because the Son of God was revealed on the road. You see, you are identified with his story, the story of the son of God here. He he is the one seed of Abraham. He is the eschatological fulfillment of the promises. See. He is united to the spirit The promised spirit. And so you are in Christ, sons and heirs of him. Heirs of the promises, sons of Abraham. And in this way, you are the eschatological fulfillment of the promises. You are the fulfillment of the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Because Christ is the fulfillment of the promises. This age of greater glory has come to you. A greater age of being before the throne of God. Of living before the throne of God. Of trusting the great work of Christ. And of laying hold of it by faith. So what does this say about Christ? Christ. Christ. If you are one in Christ, if you are all these things because of Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. Does it not mean that Christ, in His resurrection, is Abraham's offspring? He is heir according to promise? Is that not true? He receives the fullness of, Of the promises in his resurrection. He is cursed under the law for you, receives the curse of the law, but reverses it so that he may receive the inheritance above in God his Father, in God. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the continuity revealed in this text. Any comments or questions? Yes.
1: The hypothetical case of someone gaining righteousness having to obey the law perfectly, and we know that none of us are so capable as to gain Salvation and justification by faith in Christ. Compare that with Paul's statement that he is a bond slave to Christ and that he is to obey Christ's commands flawlessly. Mm-hmm. Not to gain salvation, but because he, like each of us, blood-bottoms. I've heard a preacher say that, uh, adhering to the doctrine of justification uh, by faith, they look forward to sinning. And and that really rubbed me the wrong way, because if we love the Savior, we're going to want to do what He has to do. Mm And he doesn't want us to sin because it's sinful and because it harms us and because uh, it uh, is a deviation from what we should be in Christ. And I know that I cannot produce that sort of obedience to my Savior. He has to work it in me has to grant it to me. I cannot do it of myself.
0: Well, you've got a sense of what the power of God will mean, I think, for the chapters that follow. When he gets to chapter 5, and you see he's going to talk about love being the fulfillment of the law, that in Christ Jesus, this greater faith, this greater union and identification with God through Christ is going to entail... A greater sense of obedience. A greater joy that the age of the kingdom has come and arrived. Therefore, a greater satisfaction with the glories of God in Christ Jesus. And a greater love for him. And a greater love for his saints. So in a sense, it's going to be... In Christ, we're going to be fulfilling the law, to use Paul's language in Romans 8. We're going to be living in obedience to the law if we're his sons and daughters. And so that is the fullness of that positive glories of that old covenant come to its fullness. And that's what happens. All the positive revelation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ in the old covenant comes to its fullness in him. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about that as we look under uh, the aspect um, of the. Here, what Paul is assuming is some continuity between the law and this era. And uh, when he says um, in verse 21 is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if in the law was able to give life, then righteousness would have been based upon the law. He's assuming. Some continuity there Right Because he's assuming That the law As he's saying the law Is not against the promises of God When is When are the promises of God given? Maybe ask who writes about the promises of God Moses Is someone who writes the law Right Some have called this Genesis a prologue to the law Well, in some ways, yes Insofar as it is that Then, certainly, it is showing forth That the law presupposes the promises Right? And that the law cannot be opposed To the promises In any strict way And the law, therefore, does not set up Any kind of absolute covenant of works As if Israel was able to obey the law And therefore circumvent the promises of God. So at least, and there's more we could press on this, that in some ways we must recognize that Paul's language here presupposes that the law, if you will, as he puts it earlier, is added to the promise, and therefore is given in such a way as to (coughs) serve the promise But I'm going to suggest here not just serving it in some general abstract way, but serving it insofar as it brings the promise to greater realization and gives greater insight in looking toward the age of the promise because of the grace that ultimately is there revealed. Well, another thing is that we have the Scriptures which made the promise to Abraham reveal that the law was to bind all under sin for the purpose of fulfilling the promise, verse 22. So it's the same scriptures that reveal this, that to whom the promise was made. Paul makes that very explicit. And so you have this language here, where Paul says, but the law, uh, excuse me, going back to, um, Yes, verse 22, but the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. And John Murray presses this point to point out the continuity between the old covenant and the promise. That is, that the scriptures did this. The scriptures of the Old Testament did used the law to shut up all under sin for the purpose of the promise in Christ Jesus coming to those who believe. Now, part of this is going to be depending on how we interpret this language of pedagogue and how uh, strongly we see this connection. It's, it's not very popular to take the, pot, the pedagogue in a positive sense these days uh, amongst commentators um, because the person described here as a pedagogue, many will point out that he was uh, a person who would uh, sometimes be a slave, who would accompany the child to school, um, would give him general moral instruction, uh, but they would then say, well, this person is primarily serves a negative function. So they don't see any positive role of this person. Um, But I think that that is questionable. Uh, The old Puritans would talk about the positive function of this pedagogue. And what I mean is the historical analogy of this person being purely negative is highly questionable because he may be connected with the guardian in the next section, one. He says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. He is under guardians and managers, till the date set by the father. So this pedagogue has some similarities to a guardian. Uh, well, pedagogue has some similarities to a guardian. And there's some debates on whether this is a Greek form of a guardian or a Roman form of a guardian. I can't settle that, but, but there's a man named Gaius who's written on Roman guardians. Uh, he's written a big book on Roman law, and he actually says that the guardian, in this case the chief guardian, who would watch over the child and be responsible for the child, had some responsibility for the education of the child. So if there's some connection there, there may be some indication of some positive thing, even in the analogy. Okay? But I don't think the analogy is the final deciding point on whether or not this has got some positive element in it. In other words, I think you look at the way Paul talks about the law throughout this book. How does he talk about the law and being under the law? Is he purely talking about the moral law? Now, I don't think the moral law is purely negative as a pedagogue, but let's say someone were to try to argue that. Is he purely talking about the moral law? No. He's talking about the ceremonial law, is he not? As well. Because he's talking, for instance, about Peter. Peter, who was trying to separate himself from the Gentiles, he was involved with the purity laws of the Old Testament. He was seeking to keep the ceremonial law in some sense. And then when you look at this discussion in 4 1 to 7, it's topped off by Paul uh, speaking of, in verse 10, of days, months, seasons, and years. You observe days, months, seasons, and years. I fear for you. Perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now, these days, months, seasons, and years in the Old Testament weren't these the ceremonial law? Isn't that why Israel kept them? They had you know they had these years. For instance, they had the Jubilee year. Wasn't the Jubilee year a year of anticipating the great day of deliverance of God's people? Insofar as slaves were emancipated then, at that period, and land was returned to its other owners, you know, its owners? Isn't there an emancipation? Isn't that redemptive? That's redemptive, isn't it? Now, don't you think the primary purpose of that ceremonial law was positive in the fact that it portrayed Christ to come? Now, it certainly may have a negative function in the sense that it's not the fullness of the redemption to come in Christ, so it's revealing something greater to come, right? But it is a, it is a positive anticipation, a positive tutor to lead us unto Christ. And uh, Francis Robert, Roberts, one of the great Puritans, uh, wrote a book on the Covenant. He has a long section on the Mosaic Covenant, which if you want to be diligent, you could go to the University of Washington and look up microfilm and maybe read that. Very helpful, instructive work. And he goes into how the Old Covenant was a positive tutor to lead one unto Christ. And he is not alone in that. That's a very common understanding in the Reformed tradition. Okay, uh, So, I'm going to suggest to you that definitely the ceremonial law here has that function, this positive anticipation of, unto Christ. Now, with that, there is a couple terms. Um, you have this... Uh, In verses 23 and 24, you have this to Christ, verse 24, and uh, here he's a tutor to Christ. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And you see, the way that many of the Puritans took this was that he was a tutor pointing to Christ, leading to Christ, positively speaking. Okay. Okay. The way many modern interpreters take it is just he was a tutor until Christ came. No positive function. But you can also see the term to used in 23. For faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Okay, Now, around these two clauses, and I'm only putting this out as suggestive, There are two in order that clauses, verses 22 and 24, have in order that, that the promise by faith in Christ, in order that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Verse 24, um, in order that um, we might be justified by faith. So you've got in order that and in order that, which definitely has a kind of forward-looking function, and in the middle of these two in order, that's, you have two and two, which might indicate that the twos also have a purpose function, okay? That the tutor is actually unto Christ positively. All right? It's not just simply saying there was a tutor and then came Christ. So, but I think here the very fact that we have Paul going back to the ceremonial law. What he's saying is if you go back to the ceremonial law now that Christ has come, you have even made that an end in itself, right? As if it didn't point toward Christ. And therefore I'm showing you that it does point toward Christ. The law was unto Christ. And it embodied Christ before the time, in effect. So, The center of that is Christ Jesus. And so, again, what I'm suggesting to you as you look at this context, he's talking about being under law, being under law, being under a tutor. So that he's taking this broad term of being under law, which applies to converted Jews, unconverted Jews, Gentiles, right, unconverted ones, and in whatever way they are under law, he is using this broad way of describing being under law to encapsulate all these ways of being under law, to lead unto Christ. Okay, And so that will include the Jews being under the law, converted Jews being under the law, under the ceremonial law, living out the life of the law to lead them unto Christ, positively speaking, in the history of redemption. All of this to say, you see, you cannot do it yourself. It's not in your power. It's not even in your power now of yourself to do it and to bring in the age of glory. You may think still and may live like you're on the treadmill trying to bring in that age of glory, that is your sin focusing on this world. You are to be liberated. The age of the Son of God has broken into history. The age of glory has come. All that history has looked forward to has arrived for you. You need not long for the day as if to get out from under the curse and live in some way your life as if to get out from under the curse. No, that curse has been taken away for you in relationship to your great and heavenly Father, so that you are sons and daughters of God in Jesus Christ, in his death by which he bore that curse of the law forever, and in his resurrection in which he's declared Son of God through the power of his resurrection. That is the power and the glory of the age to come in you. Amen. Any questions?
3: Okay, here's Smith.